0: We're going to start in Genesis 2. We did Genesis 1 a couple weeks ago. And I just want to put something up by a famous poet. And if we could put that up, uh, that'd be great. Maya Angelou said this in her writings, "Uh, I have great respect for the past. If you don't know where you've come from, you don't know where you're going. I have respect for the past, but I'm a person of the moment. I'm here and I do my best to completely center the place I'm at. Listen, Then I go forward to the next place. And if you read uh, lots of different cultural pieces, you can keep that up because that is such a perfect quote that the world would ask. My contention is we have a bunch of unsettled people because people don't know where they've come from, who they are, or where they're going. You see what I'm saying? And God answers every single question One of those questions emphatically and lovingly and gracefully in the book of Genesis. He starts you right off the bat. And I think if you know where you've come from, who you are, where you're going, your heart is settled. You know that you've been planned out and you're special. You're not an accident. You didn't arrive by some primordial soup and some process that sort of mingled together for billions of years. No, God created you, and he thought of you, and you were thought before the foundation of the world. When you were in your mother's womb, you were known. See, that makes a big difference. And I think we have a bunch of people running around the world, even in the Christian church, who are unsettled and anxious, and I don't think they need to be. Or we need to be. Now, I'm not just patting you on the head and saying there's an easy solution. But I think if you really dig in to the book of Genesis, look, the world is crying out to know who we are, what we're doing in the present, and where we're going. And we, as we sang this morning, we're fighting a battle, folks, that's already been won. And so, you know, I mean, think about some of the other people in culture. I mean, listen, before I was a Christian, I loved the Rolling Stones, man. And the Rolling Stones wrote a book or a song that said, I can't get no satisfaction. It was like the, it was like the, the, the cry of the heart of young people for the decades of the 60s and 70s. And it's really so true. You can't get any satisfaction In this life. And uh, on and on and on you go. You could read and study and think about some of the great thinkers who are outside of Christ, and they're all expressing the same idea. Tom Brady, Super Bowl, seven time winner. Sorry, Pittsburgh. They asked him after four or five, How does it feel? And he said, I wake up and I say, Is this all there is? Come on, man we look at tom brady or some of us do and uh, we go wow he's got everything and yet he's still searching there's this unsettledness in his heart pray for tom brady well that'll test your patience here in uh, pittsburgh but anyway so we we've we've been going through the uh, genesis the origins the foundations and we Saw last time uh, that we spoke on this or taught on this the history of creation the first day the second day the first day was light and darkness second this sort of blanket or something of moisture it's sort of mysterious and the uh, third day the land and the botanical gardens or kingdoms and uh, on and on we go fourth day light holders the the constellations and the stars fifth sea And air species, birds, and six land species, and also man's created. Now we get to chapter two. And what some people uh, get in an argument about is why is there two uh, accounts of creation? There's not two accounts of creation as you go through chapter two. It's just that he's taking a pause, sort of like I do with you, and going down and, and amplifying the day of creation and what happened. That's what chapter two is about. You see, Chapter 1 is an explosion of instruction on who God is. An explosion. Boom. I mean, it's full barrel right at you. And chapter 2 then is this. In light of who God is, it's an explosion, full barrel, of who you are. Man. In light of who God is, who are you? That's what chapter 2 is about. And I think if we remember, oh, and we even have a picture of the garden up here. Are we good or what? But I think if we keep that in mind, look, the Lord wants you to know certain things about creation. He's not against science. He stands right up to science and says, amen, come reason with me. But this isn't a science book, folks. That's not what this is. Science agrees with it. I'm for science. I'm for science and and, and the Bible, and it stands up to the test of time. But this is trying to tell you something, who you are. And who God is and where you came from and what a beautiful thing and we get here in chapter two and it says this, thus the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were finished and on the seventh day, <laughs> I laugh because after 2,000 years, nobody understands the rest of that God is talking about right here. And God says, on the seventh day, God ended his work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work which He God had created and made. Now listen, you remember this, right? Remember this. We talked about it. There's different theories about the days of creation. Some people believe that there are literal 24 seven-day weeks or six-day weeks, whatever. You get it, right? uh, 24-hour. Hey, thanks, man. And, um, but some people don't believe that, even in the Christian world. Some people believe that each one of the days were long periods and epics. and we went through some of those theories. One thing I didn't tell you last week is the number one reason while somebody who believes in a young earth, 24 days, seven days a week, that they're actually days is because epics meant things were living and dying for billions of years, listen, prior to the fall. And how could that be? There was no death. Now, I understand that old earthers in the Christian world have different views on that too and can uh, talk about that. But I'm just telling you uh, that's one big reason that people believe in young earth. And there's many more. And we talked about that some last time. But I suggest to you, go to the Creation Museum. Uh, Grab some books. Start reading about it. It's important. Why is it important? Jesus referenced these first 11 chapters of the Bible, and if he referenced them and talked about them, he was relying upon them, and he wouldn't rely upon a farce, you see. So very important. But we get here, and there's a seventh day, and God ended his work, which he had done, rested all his work, and then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it. What does sanctified mean? It means set apart. But I want you to start thinking through uh, some things here. The first thing is, I want you to remember, is that in the six prior days when God ended up, he said there was morning and evening. He never says that on the seventh day. I want you to file that back away. He never says morning and evening, that was the seventh day. He doesn't say that. It's sort of open-ended, everybody with me. Here's some other things I want you to think about when it comes to what he's talking about here prior to the fall. That God ended his work, which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day. What, what do you know about God? See, when you read the Bible, you've got to take all that you know from the Bible. You can't just isolate one little place. you got to take what you know. What do you know about God? He's omnipotent. He's omnipotent. Um, omnipotent. He's all-powerful. He, ne- he doesn't slumber nor sleep. Now, I got up at 3 a.m. last night, and I, tr- I was studying and reading, and guess what happened about 5 a.m.? I couldn't take it anymore, and I just conked out again <laughs> because I need to slumber and sleep. How about you? But God never slumbers nor sleeps, and what these passages are talking about is not that God stopped creating because he was exhausted. Listen right here. If you don't listen the rest of the time, I hope you listen right here. God didn't rest because he was tired or couldn't do anymore. You know how you get to that place where you've overworked and you're just at the, you're just like fall into bed and you're just wiped out. See, that wasn't this. God rested because he ceased from creating. Write that down. And the reason I want you to know that so much is because of what Ray Steadman says in his commentary on the Sabbath rest. This issue, this Sabbath, this rest, this ceasing from creating is not the keeping of a special day. But... The ending of a specific effort. I'm going to say it to you again. This isn't about a special day. It's about the ending of a specific effort. Because after this, God stopped creating. Now, I got a little news for you that's going to shock the whole sanctuary, maybe. But God still was working. And how was he working? He was sustained. He sustains all things. You know, if God lets go, we're all in trouble. He's sustaining even till now. And I can prove it to you. Because Jesus said, my father works and I work. Jesus was working. So listen. What is happening here in Genesis is that God is ceasing from creating. That's what's happening, and that's really important for you to know because I think if you understand what real rest and Sabbath rest is, it's going to sort of revolutionize your walk because there's a lot of people that come around and say, if you don't worship on this day, And what cracks me up about those people is, like, for instance, I have somebody who found out, I don't know how they found this out. I try to keep this really quiet, that I watch football on Sundays. (laughs) And somebody got really mad at me. No kidding. Mad. So what are you doing? It's the Sabbath. I'm like, it's not. The Sabbath, Sunday is not the Sabbath. Can I say it any louder? The Sabbath was the last day. It was, or excuse me, it was the sixth day into the seventh day. You get it? And you get it. It's the seventh day, but it starts after the sixth day. It's in the seventh day. It's the last day of the week. Saturday is the Sabbath, according to the Bible. But here's the thing. Sunday, why do we celebrate on Sunday? I want you to know this. Because the early church saw Jesus rise again on the first day of the week. And they knew that the Sabbath, listen, it says it in the Bible. It's so plain, even I can understand it. That the Sabbath is a shadow of the reality of Christ. And when Christ came, died, and rose again, there was no more need for a special day with Israel because the Bible says, Jesus says, you can enter into, uh, Paul says, and Jesus says, Hebrews 4 says, there's a rest that remains. Why? Because Jesus said, if you'll come, if you're really tired, if you're really weary, if you'll just yoke up with me, You'll put the yoke on. You'll just yoke up. You'll just put the yoke up like cattle or livestock. You just come alongside me and you yoke up with me. Listen, listen. I'll give you rest. So, folks, I want you to know something. God wants you always, the Old Testament, why is he establishing a Sabbath and then, listen, every seven years, do you know this, on the sixth year of Israel's time in the land, in the sixth year, they were to plant double and reap double so that they never worked the land on the seventh year. That's a Sabbath. And then, oh, by the way, on the 49th year, remember, the next year was the year of Jubilee. This is amazing. So say I sold my property to Cade, and then Cade sold it over to Mike. In year 50, watch this, the property reverted back to me. Everything went back to the person. You imagine what you would be doing in the year of Jubilee. I would be jumping up and down. There were all these Sabbaths built in to the Old Testament law, listen, that were fulfilled by Jesus Christ. And Paul says in his writings, you don't have to keep a Sabbath anymore, like a specific day. And we go, oh, wait a minute, they're confusing until you go, watch, until you go back to Genesis 2 and you go, wait a minute. He was ceasing from creating, but he still worked. You, you get what I'm saying? So the true Sabbath, listen to this, is, isn't a day. The true Sabbath is, watch, oh my goodness, this should just excite you and liberate you. The true Sabbath is to stop from working to create your life. (laughs) Oh, that's the best I got right there. Because if you understand that, God says, you don't have to strain or strive to be accepted by me. That's the message. And you don't have to strain or strive or make it happen. You ever watch these influencers? We're making the life we always wanted to make. You're like, "Uh uh-oh, don't say that. God's making it. And God was teaching them, listen, Remember, Genesis 2 is before the fall. What did they do with God in the garden? We're going to see. They walked with him and they talked with him. That's a good song. And he told them, right? And they communed with God. What were they doing? They were living in perfect reliance upon the Father for everything. Sabbath. That's Sabbath. Because here, I think many of you say, oh, that's really great, Pastor. That's so good. I need to rest in the Lord. But you know, I need to go pay my bills and do all that and da-da-da-da-da. Yes, but the Bible teaches through all the Sabbaths that you and I are always to go out and do what we do by the power of the Holy Spirit. Listen, out of a position of rest. That's what it's all about. You are to move forward in a position of rest. So let's talk about what rest is. I've referred to it a couple times, but I haven't identified it for you. First here, here's rest. Rest is not just believing. The devils even believe. Rest is believing plus trusting and then go like this. Now it's up to you, Lord. (laughs) See, because you little worriers out there, I'm pointing the finger at me too. Here's what we do. We believe and we say we trust. And then we worry about it all the time. And we drive ourselves into the ground because we're worried and we're stressed and we need to pay that bill. And we go, how could we, we, this bill come to me? And, blah, 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 blah. And, and next thing you know, you've driven yourself in the ground. And the Lord says, I want you to rest by not just believing, but trusting too. So that when, You are facing, or or anything that you're facing, recognizing that the battle's won, you serve a good God who cares for you so highly that he would go to the ends of the earth. Well, I don't know if that's the way. He'd make galaxies and universes, and then this perfect little planet, tilted on a 23-degree axis in the perfect place where life could reside. It's perfect. It's only there that life could be, and he stuck us there. And he said, I want to have communion with you. That's how much he cares for you. So when you encounter the rent due or the boss saying, no more here, go find another job. Or maybe the doctor says it's cancer. Yeah, of course, you don't jump up and down, click your heels because of that. But you know what you do. You believe the promises of God, but not only believe, you trust him and that's resting Here's the second thing I think resting is. Recognizing that you rely upon the life of another. That's what the Sabbaths are about. Here I am in the garden prior to the fall, and God said he rested, and there remains a rest. I'm just living like we should live by the power of the Holy Spirit in perfect reliance upon the Father. That is resting. You don't have to do it all by yourself. You don't have to manipulate the circumstances. You don't have to make it happen. You do your best and leave it with God. And he knows best. And that's rest. You see? So I want you to just... Now, 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 now let let me take a little time out. You can understand that I don't believe that you have to worship and rest on a certain day. And I laugh... When people say you can't watch football on Sunday, I just chuckle. I'm like, you you don't get it. The Sabbath ain't Sunday, pal. You, you don't even know what you're talking about. You're being real legalistic. But here's the thing. Do I think a Sabbath rest of working six days and taking a day off is good? Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. Do I think that you should probably, in this modern world... Get away if you can. Doesn't have to be expensive. And just take a resting vacation like going to Colorado and hiking 12 miles every day. Tell Jan about that when you see her. But I'm kidding. But Do I think it's good to go and rest? And listen, do I think that this is another modern-day Sabbath that nobody ever thinks about? Why aren't you meeting the Lord every morning with your Bible open out on your back deck and just communing with the Lord for 45 minutes or an hour? See, to me, that's Sabbath. Am I saying you shouldn't take a day off? No, I think you should. Here's why. Because people can make work an idol. We have workaholics that are sitting right in here, and you got to watch it because you make something an idol, And you never take a rest, and you make everybody's life miserable because you won't rest. And what do I think we should do when we Sabbath, whether it be in the morning or on our vacations, whether it be a day every week, which is a great idea? Here's what I think we should do. It's really funny to me that if you look up what you should do on the Sabbath in the Scriptures You ain't going to find much. There's no guidebook. But it's clear, isn't it clear, that when you Sabbath, it's not about the movie theater, although, you know, you could go to, I'm not bashing movies. It's not about the jet skis. It's not about the boom, and it's not about the blah. It's about focusing concentrated effort on the Lord, glorifying Him and praising Him and studying His Word and being refreshed and renewed. Here's why. Because I think our bodies and our rhythms are designed for a rest, a ceasing from working, always seeking from spiritual working to get to God because the blood of Jesus gets us there. But also just practically, I think it's it's a good thing to do. You get it? You guys, I'm passionate about this because I believe the Lord's calling you to live Always from a p- position of rest, faith, belief, and trust, which is faith, and relying upon the power of another. Galatians two twenty. Look it up after this. It's no longer I who live, Paul said. Bingo! It's Christ crucified He lives in me. Right? That's Sabbath. Now. If you want to worship on Saturday, I say, go for it. You're convicted that you should worship on Saturday and that's the end of the week and you should do that. I say, praise the Lord, go for that. But here's the problem. Let me just give it with one caveat. Don't put that trip on other people. Don't say you have to worship on this day because the Bible says we should be Sabbathing all the time, every day. Everybody with me? All right. Talk to me after for those who are upset. But anyway, uh, this is important. I think this is really important because God established a rest. He showed us a pattern. And we in this modern society have no idea what it's about. We go up to people and say, why are you watching football on Sunday? We have no idea what it's about, but if we really knew what it was about. See, it's amazing right here in the second chapter. He's given us what we need to be settled and to work effectively for his kingdom. Amazing. Right there. Thus, the heavens and the earth, they're finished. Seventh day, God ended his work. By the way, I want you to know, that the establisher of these page breaks totally screwed it up right here. Chapter 2, 1 through 3 certainly should be in the prior chapter, but whatever. Uh, he must have been watching football at the time. But... So we go on, and this is where we go. This is the history, the history of the heavens and the earth when they were created. This is the history of the heavens and the earth that created. We've already seen the history of the heavens and the earth in chapter 1. Now you're going to get an amplification of what happened in those first several days. Everybody with me? And so he, he tells us again. And the reason he tells us again, I think, is because some of these details that you need to know, you need to know to follow the story of Genesis. If chapter 2 wasn't in there, you and I and we would be sort of lost later on. So he does a good job, and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he does that. Now you remember, there are 11, I almost went like this, there are 11, I'm sorry, there are 11 references to records that were compiled and given to Moses Remember in the old days when you had to write a term paper, who had to write a term paper and who had to do it on a typewriter, if you had a typewriter? See, that was me. And, you know, at my college, I waited till the last day, and it usually was like around 10 pages or nine pages or something. So I went into either the library or I went into my room, and what did I have to take with me to write the paper? What? Typewriter. What else did I have to take? Huh? notes but i also had to take the books man was it a pain and then you stayed up all night and you didn't get any sleep and you got like a c plus or whatever you got but but anyway you had to compile the books and that's what moses is doing people may have compiled these histories there's 11 references in the book of genesis to this sort of thing and here's the first one and it's this is the history of the heavens and earth when they were created. Some people believe Adam compiled it. I'm just giving you the theories. And it was passed along until Moses came along and they gave it to Moses. However, you can study that. So this is the history of the heavens and the earth when they were created in a day that the Lord God made the earth and heavens before any plant of the field was in the earth and before any herb of the field had grown. For uh the Lord God had uh, not caused it to rain on the earth, and there was no man to till the ground. But a mist uh, uh went up from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. And the Lord God formed a, a man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living being. So let's unpack this a little bit. This is the history of the heavens. You're going to always remember there's 11 references to genealogies or records. This is the first one. And the earth when they were created in the day uh, that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now watch. There's an interesting, uh, a very interesting reference here. The word here before any herb of the field had grown. That sounds like you kind of scratch your head and you go, wait a second. They made the plants back in chapter one on one of the days. But when you read how this is written in the Hebrew, what the writer is saying right here is that the land had not been grown up and farmed yet. They use a farming or agriculture verb here and some language so that it's not that there's a second account or some Competing account, but that nobody yet was a farmer and that the herbs in the fields hadn't grown and the Lord hadn't caused it to rain on the earth. Now, remember, the first time you're going to see rain in the Bible is at the flood. Everybody know that? You're going to see it at the flood. So it's not raining. But remember, there was this firmament. Do you remember this? Uh, Below and above. And we saw that in. Uh, The first day, uh, or excuse me, the first chapter of creation. And some people believe, although this has really gone out of uh, sort of um, scientific uh, favor, even among the Christians, that there was this sort of greenhouse canopy above the earth. Okay? But what it says here is that the earth was misting. And some people, the, the, the theologians are divided. Some people believe there was this mist coming up the earth like the earth, you know, sort of like the spray bottle on your plants over the whole earth. Some people believe that. But some people believe it was just so lush and had so many great rivers that it was lush and it was watered that way. Some people believe mist here means rivers. I'll let you do the digging there, but what I do know is is that it was being watered and planted that a mist went up from the earth and the Lord God, listen, formed man to the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. This is incredible what's happening here in the Hebrew. The Lord God formed man. He uses uh, a word, uh, a Hebrew word that means to form or fashion. I'm going to see if you're awake. Oh, good. By design. That's the word. It's on purpose. You know, we weren't, uh, man just wasn't formed or fashioned. The Hebrew word here means formed or fashioned by design. Oh my goodness, you should jump up and down right here. This changes everything. That means God thought of you and had a, a way of creating that was planned out. You see that? You weren't just some uh, soup. And you just sort of da-da-da-da-da-da and you walked out of the, the soup or the mist or whatever. You didn't do that. You were formed. Man was formed by design. You were formed by design, which means he thought of you, which means you matter. That's the biggie. That's what you should come away with right here. You matter. There are people walking around. I'll bet you there's some right here right now in this room who feel like they're a loser or a loner or don't matter to people. Well, that's a lie straight from the pit of hell. You matter so much. Watch. I wonder if you've ever thought of this. You know, in the Psalms, it says that the heavens, you know, he sits his throne in the heavens and the earth is his footstool. Does anybody know that? Okay. I mean, you matter. Listen, God made everything we could ever imagine. If you're an astronomer or whatever you are, and you look, (laughs) I can never remember what's what's bad and what's good. So sometimes when I say it, yeah. But anyway, if you go and study these things, all of this is God's temple now, in a sense. And he sits his feet on the earth, and he's watching over the earth. And this is the place that he rules and reigns from. And watch this. What did God intend at the beginning? Watch. Oh boy, I got a lot of rabbit trails to unwind here. But here it is. Here's what God intended from the beginning to give a space for humans to live. Do this, pinch yourself. To live physically on an earth and commune with him. And when you think about that, you go, wait a second, I'm not a loser. I matter. I mean, I matter. God went to all that trouble so he could commune with me. And listen, you might think, well, God so loved the world, like this big blob. Yeah, but he loves you individually too. That's how big he is. And he created this space and watch. In chapter 3, we're going to see man rebel against all of God's goodness and sweetness and majesty and grace and power. They're going to rebel. And the whole story of the Bible is God reclaiming that and when watch. And when you get to the last two chapters of the Bible, watch. The curse is reversed and what's happening? God is in the garden Walking and talking with people. He's communing with people. You don't need his son anymore. His glory is there. It's bookended. That's the story of the Bible. And that's how much you matter. And oh, by the way, watch we're right in the middle of the Bible. It's all made possible when Jesus is in the garden. Garden, garden, garden. When Jesus is in the garden, a human but fully God saying, Lord, if this cup could pass, if there's any way, is there any other way, Lord? Blood, sweating. You think he didn't know anxiety or stress? If there's any other way, and how did he relieve the stress? He relied upon the goodness of the Father, but not my will, thy will be done And he marched to the cross from the garden. And he took what was coming for us and defeated death and rose again. And now when we go, our future is completely settled. The battle's already won. We're going to live with him in the new heavens and the new earth. Look, pinch yourself. Do it. With a physical body in a big space of beauty and glory. You see it? That's what Genesis is all about. Now I got to tie this up. (laughs) Because I came here from formed. He made you by design and that's the design. He formed man of the dust of the ground. You know you're earthy, folks. In fact, I think it would be a great... Women's retreat. This is a joke. Topic If you went to Second Corinthians, Chapter Four, and or is it First Corinthians? We carry uh, this treasure in earthen vessels. Might be First Corinthians. All right, it's second. What verse? Perfect, thank you. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. Was God amazing or what? He made us from the dust. Hey, by the way, guess what root word comes from? Or guess what name comes from the root word for dust? Adam. They're the, really the same, from the same family. Adam, A., Adam, man. It means you're earthly. Earthy, excuse me. And Paul later tells us that we have this treasure in earthen vessels. But listen, if you were perfectly like a Lamborghini-type, cyborg-type of person. None of the glory could come out. You're earthy. And sometimes you're cracked a little bit. Who here sometimes feels cracked? And the Bible says, listen to this, in your weakness, he'll be made strong, or or he'll be strong, or you'll see his glory in big ways. Isn't that amazing? He made us out of the earth. He brought us up out of the earth, and he breathed into his nostrils. What happened there? Well, you know this. He, God created us. He's the one responsible for life. It's a word, ruach, spirit. It's in the um, New Testament as pneuma. But what he's doing here is breathing life into people. And man becomes a living being. Now watch. David takes this theme a little farther. (laughs) It's almost too hard to believe, but it's not because we're Christians. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Psalm 150. Guys, if you're just a reader... You're never more alive and doing the thing that God called you to do than when you're praising him. But here's the funny part. (laughs) Praise isn't limited to like this place with instruments. It's it's, it's, It's not limited in any way. It's your whole life praising God. So watch We're going to get into it a minute. Here it is. Listen, when you go to work, who here loves work? just one. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) You know, this is on tape, so um, everybody raise your hand. No, but listen, listen, our work is worship. But here, everything has breath is to praise the Lord. What? You you read this and you put the connection together. Look, look, I know what the purpose of your life is. I said it on Wednesday. It's the same thing I said on Wednesday. It's to make God big and glorify him through your fruit and preach the ministry of reconciliation. How you get back to God by Christ. Look at this. And that's the purpose of your life. And I know it, but you know it too. When I read Maya Angelou, I'm like, Maya, just read the Bible, dear. Come into a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And all those things, past, present, future, are all settled. And you don't ever have to wonder. It's amazing. It's everywhere in the scriptures. It's screaming to us. God's screaming to us. So here's what the Lord did. He plants a garden eastward in Eden. Oh, what a name, Eden. Somebody should name their kid Eden. But here's the amazing part about Eden. And I think this will bless your heart. Eden means pleasurable and abundant. And I want you to see something. It's not like God said, okay, there are those people again. I'm going to make them something down there so they can hang out, some little tenement. God put them in Eden where he could take pleasure in his people and he would be abundant for them. See, some of us have to get rid of the idea that God is towering over you every minute of your life, ready to, you know, boom, hit you on the top of the head with the class ring or something. God loves you. And he takes pleasure in communing with you. He put his people in a garden named pleasure. It's incredible. So he does that. He puts them in Eden. There he put the man whom he had formed and out of the ground, the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. Isn't that wonderful? Abundant man. Everywhere, millions and millions of trees, and out of the ground, the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight, good for food. The tree of life was also in the middle of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And you and I have to start sort of figuring out what those trees are. The tree of life's sort of mysterious. Tree of knowledge of good and evil, we get a clue of what the tree of knowledge of good and evil is, is when uh, Eve is getting tempted. Because what does the enemy say to Eve? He says, hey, man, if you eat of this, you'll be like God. Remember that? So we get a little hint of that. And what I want you to see is this. I don't believe Adam and Eve didn't know moral things at this time and that by eating the knowledge of tree of good and evil, they would gain some moral insight. I think they already knew that. I think the clue is, if you eat of that, you're going to be like God. Hmm. And what is being like God like? Well, people do it all the time. They dictate their own life. They live independent of God. They're like God, so they live independent of God. Watch, what were Adam and Eve doing? Eve's not here yet, but what What does Adam and Eve do? They live in communion with God. They're trusting him. How did Jesus say we're to come into the kingdom? Like little children. Having faith where we say, God, I need some food today. God, I need this provision today. God, my attitude is really terrible today. I need help. Fill me up for God, God, God. And you just keep coming back in perfect dependence and reliance upon a father. But when Eve ate, when they finally eat of this tree, of the knowledge of good and evil, here's what I think happened. Their independence from God was established. They rebelled. And they said, we'll make the decisions now and we don't need you. And you say, well, that's terrible, except for here's the deal. There's a gazillion people running around the whole world right now saying the exact same thing. So that's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Tree of life. It's probably and is, I think, a tree that sustains eternal life. It has something to do with eternal life. And we're going to talk about that more when we get to how it's guarded, etc. But anyway, a river goes out of Eden to water the garden. From there it parted and became four river heads. First is Pishon, it's the one which skirts the whole land of Havilah. Watch where there is gold. Hey, I love this one. Come on, man. I know I'm on a lot of rabbit trails, but when you go back into the new heavens and the new earth, what's going to be in the new heavens and the new earth? Gems, gold. Incredible. You can go read it there. But anyway, here it is, there's gold, Delium and the Onyx Stone are there, the name of the second river, Gihon, it's the one which goes around the whole land of Cush, the name of the third is Hedekel. it's the one which goes toward the east of Assyria, and the fourth is Euphrates. Now where is this place? I have no idea, and it doesn't bother me at all, and here's why. This is pre-flood. The topography has changed, folks. What happened, flood, was cataclysmic. And it changed the topography of the earth. Am I surprised they can't find these places? You know, two of the rivers they sort of know, but is it in the same spot? Who knows? I'm not bothered by that at all because the topography has changed. But whatever. He makes this abundant, 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 and then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend and keep it. Okay. I want you to know That God had work for Adam prior to the fall. I want you to write that down. And here's the reason I want you to write that down. A lot of people think God cursed the land and then made Adam work. Adam was actually working before the fall. Okay, here it comes. Which means where God has put you in your job is an opportunity every single day smile now smile to worship god work is worship leisure time is worship your whole life is worship listen what it says, Paul says in Colossians 3, and whatever you do, whatever, you going to play pickleball this afternoon? No? Okay. You're going to watch football? It's Sunday. Don't do that. But whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord. Not to men. You're not working for the boss, although you're going to be a good witness for the boss or to the boss. Because you're going to be worshiping the Lord. And when you worship the Lord, you want to do your best. As well as you can do. Do your best at work. If you want to be a great witness at work, do your best. Have people see you be responsible. Show up. Have them trust you to do what they're asking you to do. And do it. And while you're doing it, sing to the Lord in your heart. It's worship. And the let me read you this, the rest. And not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ at work or wherever you are. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, of every tree of the garden you can eat, But the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Now, this is near and dear to my heart, because when somebody was sharing the gospel with me, this was a sticking point for me, man. I'm like, why in the world would God put that tree in there and say, Off limits, just don't put the tree in there. And everybody's cool, and we're good. That's what I kept asking And the person who was sharing me with me wasn't equipped to answer that question. It took me a lot of years to figure that out. And one of the ways I figured it out or know it is because, listen, now don't get hurt about this if you're divorced. But my wife knows where the divorce court is. And every day, she chooses. She could go down to the divorce court, file a petition, boom. I could go down to the divorce court, file petition, but we don't. Why? Even when it's tough, what are we doing? What are we saying? Even when we're in a fight, even when we're quibbling, what are we saying? We choose each other. See, that's real love. Real love isn't holding my wife at the door by the lapels and saying, you can't go anywhere and do anything and uh, uh, get down to the divorce court because I want you to make you love me. If you knew that about me, what would you say? You guys aren't really in love. And it's the same here. There's an element of choice, folks, that the Lord wants you to choose obedience to him over every other thing. And you know what? He didn't even make it hard here. Millions and millions of trees. Eat of anything you want. Go lay under them all day long. I don't care. Eat, drink, do whatever. You see this one little tree? Just stay away from that, okay? Just one. Choice is real love. And so he puts that there. Don't eat, because what will happen is you're going to die. What's interesting, folks, just raise your hand. You know this. He didn't die immediately, or they didn't die immediately when we get to the next part of the story. But he began to decay. He died spiritually. She died spiritually. But they began to decay, and they would die physically. And somehow Adam knew this was serious. He didn't know what death was, but he knew it was serious. But watch this. What else do we see in the second chapter? And I'll go quick. And the Lord God said, it's not good that man should be alone. I'll make him a helper comparable to him. Hey, by the way, if you're single, listen, just because one thing is good doesn't mean another thing is bad. The Lord here says it's not good that we should be alone, whether that mean, listen, marriage, which we're going to talk about here in a minute, but also look, we're not alone. And praise the Lord, we're not alone, right? We get to be in a family. Some of us want to be more alone than others. But we have community and we have a family that we can come to. And I want you to know, Paul writes and says, shoot, singleness is the greatest opportunity to serve the Lord. Singleness is good too. But God here is establishing how he's going to fill and populate the earth. And one of the ways, well, the way in which he's going to do that is through marriage. So he establishes marriage. And I want you to see something. He tells Adam that it's not good that man should be alone. He establishes the need. Because remember, it's one God and three persons, eternal in the heavens, before time began. One God and three persons. Look, the Holy uh, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, in perfect communion and love in the Trinity. And he knows it's amazing to have that understanding and love and communication and fellowship. You get it? And so he's like, wow, you know, you're down here all by yourself. You need a helper. And it's comparable. You need a comparable. Folks, the Bible isn't sexist. You sit them side by side, man and woman. Boom. Perfect comparison. No one's better. No one's lesser. There's just different rules. Roles, sorry. R-O-L-E-S. So it's not good. God points it out, out of the ground, God formed every beast, every bird, and he brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. This is, this is sort of funny. I mean, God has a sense of humor. Adam called each living crit- creature that was its name. So Adam gave names to all the cattle, to the birds of the air, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper comparable to him. He ran through it. Here come two, you know, the male and the female cow. Yeah, let's call those cows. Here come the robins. Oh, let's call those robins or whatever. Whatever was in the garden there, he names them. But then at the end, he's like, huh. Wait a minute. There's nobody for me here. And God said, I'm going to make somebody comparable to him. So what does he do? He gives names to the cattle, and, and you see all that, and he finds out there's no one comparable. The Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam. If you went to the family series with us, we said that you don't need to beat the bushes. If God's given you a need to be married or as asking you to be married, you don't need to beat the bushes. It's not how God did it. God put them to sleep. It's so funny. Just rest. I'll do the work. Ooh, that's hard to say in this culture. And yet that's what the Lord did. And he slept and he took one of his ribs, closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib, which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman and he brought her to the man. And um, Adam said, this is now bone of my bones. This is like a joyful praise and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was, taken out of the man. And therefore, a man shall leave his mother and father and be joined uh, uh, to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and they were not ashamed. Now listen, real quickly. I know I'm going over, but come on, folks. Genesis 2 is important. (laughs) You're like, not on football Sunday, it ain't. So he went to sleep, he took one of the ribs. There's an old Hebrew tradition, Matthew Henry quotes it, he didn't take from the head or from the feet because he wasn't lording it over or stepping on somebody. That's not the role of man and woman, husband and wife. But he took from the side where there was protection and love. And care, boom, side by side. You ever wondered why you hug somebody? He took from the side. And if you think about Jesus pursuing his bride, there was, on the cross, there was a, mm, a spear, boom, thrust into his side. And the water and the blood burst out. And he went through it all. It was care and protection, going and sacrifice, going for the higher good for the other. That's what men and women are all about. And he sings out in joyful praise, this is bone of my bones, me- uh, flesh of my flesh, and therefore, listen to this, a man shall leave and cleave. And you know this, this is, these verses right here are quoted by both Jesus in Matthew nineteen five. Time out, I got a little rabbit trail. I know, I'm going to get you out of here. I used to live in the apartment of a really liberal pastor. He wasn't with me. He was there. Me and Jan lived in their apartment, fully furnished, in the beautiful city of Waikiki. And he used to argue with me that Jesus never said that marriage was between a man and a woman. And I'm like, I don't know about you, and I'm young in the faith, but did you ever read Matthew 19:5? where Jesus says a man shall leave his mother and father, be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. It's a man and a woman joined to his wife. Here, marriage is born in the loving heart of God for the blessing and benefit of mankind. And what happens? I want you to see something. I know we got to go, but you got to see it. We'll pick up on next week. Uh, You got to leave, husband and wife, leave all of their Permanent relationships, that doesn't mean you don't honor your parents. But you got marrieds who are living their life in the midst of their parents and asking their parents to work out the things between them two. That's not it. you got to leave your parents. But here, you got to leave every relationship. If you're a man and you're texting this girl at work and you go to lunch with her, in my opinion, that's inappropriate. I don't care if your wife knows or not. It's inappropriate. What would you think? Well, if I was doing that stuff, you came downtown and you're like, oh, that's his different world. He lives down there. I don't think you should be taking counsel from somebody from the opposite sex as friends. You know what I'm saying? I I don't. What? Boom, 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 calling. You, You leave all those relationships, man. And you cleave to your husband or your wife. You come together and that means, listen to this, emotionally, spiritually, and I want to say to you, if there's younger people in the room, you got to hear it because I'm not embarrassed to say it, physically. You should not withhold your emotional sharing with your spouse. You should not withhold spiritual sharing and interaction with your spouse you should not withhold physical sexual relationships between you and your spouse and we got millions of people doing that right now even in the christian world that's not the design that's not the pattern you leave and then you cleave And you both were, they both were naked, the man and his wife, and they weren't ashamed. They lived in the pre-fall world. Watch. Does that mean they didn't have any clothes on? I think so. But that's not all that it means. It means there was no shame. They didn't feel any shame. You ever felt shame? That's a rough place to be. And Jesus died for our shame. You know what? is a healing thing that I'm going to say, and you're going to go, eh, yeah, whatever. And people aren't getting healed because of this. On the other side of the cross or the the, the, the fall and now the cross, how do we live unashamed? We admit it and we repent and we live in the light of what we've done. And we, Depend upon the Lord, but here's what most people do. I ain't telling nobody what I did. And then it wrecks everything. All right, I got to go. We got to go. People are going to really get after me. Sunday school teachers are about ready to kill me. So let's pray. Let's pray. Well, Lord, I thank you for this day, and I thank you that uh, you've put together this amazing chapter of the Bible, and we can learn and grow from it. And uh, Lord, as we worship you in this song, I pray that we would think of all the things that you've put on our hearts today, and that we wouldn't leave out of here without responding to the gospel. Whatever, Lord, you've spoken to us today, help us to be obeyers of your word. In Jesus' name, amen.